Welcome to Pivot the Podcast, exploring career twists and turns with me, Laura Oldfield. Hello, lovely listener. How are you? I'm in my pyjamas. I have been gently editing the podcast that I recorded with Grace back in the second week of December. The Christmas tree is twinkling in the background. I've got a hot drink on the go. And listening back to this recording, it's just feeling really wonderful. But that's also because I am so grateful for your feedback on the episode so far. It's been brilliant to hear what you think. I'm so delighted you're enjoying the variety and eclecticism of guests. And we've got some amazing ones coming up for you. Now, this podcast with Grace, who is Grace? Perhaps if you've come to this podcast via Substack or via my website, you might not know who Grace is because she isn't in the world of coaching and mentoring. Or perhaps you're a musician listening to this and you think, oh, wow, it's Grace. Because Grace is an oh, wow sort of a person. As soon as I decided to start this podcast, I knew I wanted to interview her. She has had such a thrilling career, starting out as a fellow soprano like me. If you don't know that I am a professional soprano, I sing primarily classical music and film music. So classical music can be anything from the early 1600s up to the present day. Film music can be any sound, as Grace and I discuss. We're really a colour or an instrument when we're singing film music rather than a voice. And we unpick that a bit more in this podcast. And then sometimes I get to do really fun pop and jazz stuff as well. Grace is someone whose career has exploded because she has such a unique sound that the best composers in the world have wanted to use it. And so she is able to have a career where she's pivoted from being somebody who sings lots of the classical music, particularly music from the Baroque period. So technically that's anywhere from 1600 to 1750. But in reality, it's composers like Johann Sebastian Bach, who was born from 1685 to 1750, or George Friedrich Handel, an English composer who, well, he came over to England and the Queen was obsessed with him who, like Bach, was born in 1685 but lived till 1759. I think, I'm sure you'll tell me if I've got that wrong, fellow musicologists. And what Grace does now is, well, take a moment and think of a film. And chances are, if there is an ethereal, beautiful voice soaring over the top, it's Grace's. Think Lord of the Rings and you can't go far wrong. Grace and I discuss quite a few niche things in this podcast. I hope it's helpful if I just take a moment to do a brief glossary. When we're talking about cantatas, these are short compositions that people like Bach wrote, which were for solo voices and instruments, had a series of short excerpts or chapters and could be really technically demanding because Bach was writing for the singer as if he was writing for an actual musical instrument like an oboe or an organ. We also discuss music from the Renaissance and the Baroque period. You'll hear Grace talking a lot about choirs and consorts. Consorts are simply smaller versions of choirs, often singing one person on each separate part or perhaps two people on each separate part. Just a few other points. Grace mentions a choir called the Sixteen and a man called Harry Christophers a few times. They're considered one of the best choirs in the world. They do sing a lot of the music that we've described already, but they sing lots of other kinds of music as well. 
but generally they sing two people per part, perform all over the world. And if you turn on Classic FM right now, I bet you during the course of the day you'll hear them. Nigel Short, for full transparency, has employed me since I was 21. I say employed, self-employed. He, as she describes, is a former professional singer, now professional conductor, and he conducts a choir called Tenebrae, with whom I've sung since I was 21. Again, much like the 16, perform all over the world to the highest standards. A different kind of repertoire, and sometimes overlapping repertoire, but different sound, different styles, both incredible ensembles. And finally, when Grace talks about choosing where she could go to music college, in terms of studying as a classical postgraduate, generally people look at a few places, the Royal College of Music, the Royal Academy of Music, Guildhall School of Music, which is towards Barbican Trinity School of Music in Greenwich, Royal Northern in Manchester. And again, if I've forgotten one that specialises in that classical world, do let me know. I'm providing really detailed show notes for this podcast. So if this world is new to you, hopefully Grace and I do a good job of explaining it simply from her perspective. If you want to learn more about it, you can go and look at the show notes. They'll be on my website, on my substat, and everything I've mentioned is linked because it's definitely a bit of a hidden world and a different language. And I really wanted to acknowledge that before we begin. And I hadn't quite realised that until we explored this stuff together. Grace is charming and talented. She's also incredibly resilient and hardworking. And that's why she's an example of someone who's pivoted from A to B to X so successfully. I'm sure you're dying to hear from Grace now. So let's get on with it and I'll be back at the end for a brief goodbye. Here's Grace Davidson. Welcome back to Pivot the Podcast, where today I am joined by the ethereal, the effervescent, the wonderful Grace Davidson, soprano uh, in demand by pretty much every film composer I can think of. And I was so excited when Grace agreed to be on the podcast because her profession, a profession that we share, is one that, as she herself has described to me, is one that can seem like a great mystery in terms of career progression or how we end up where we end up. And so, Grace, for those who are new to you, I would love it if you could share a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what you spend your days doing as this wonderful singer. Hello, Laura, and lovely. Thank you for inviting me to come and have a chat. So I am a soprano. I trained formally at the Royal Academy of Music. I was surrounded by many wonderful opera singers. I never really felt that perhaps that was going to be the route for me, and indeed it hasn't turned out to be so. But um, at the root of it all, I, I suppose as a, as a child, I began singing in church choirs, just a sort of local church choir, nothing, nothing very professional. I sang with the Finchley Children's Music Group, which I had some lovely little productions wow. and I did. And uh, first and foremost, I was really a violinist as a child, like you. And I loved my violin and I, yes. I really thought that was what I was going to be, a violinist. So I would play and I would sing and I was, I was very lucky, really. I was just delivered to and from my lessons by my non-musical parents. But by about the age of 15, the singing was really taking over from the violin. I think there gets a point where you have to really, really practice the violin. And that, that just wasn't my, <laughs> that wasn't my discipline. And I just wanted to sing. So I was at the junior guild hall as a singer and a slash violinist slash viola player, which became, you know, slightly more popular <laughs> if you weren't a great violinist. Um, and that all just... <laughs> That all happened. And then I left school and I trained as a chef for a year whilst I auditioned to... I didn't know that. 
Yeah, there you go. There's a bit of new information for the day. So um, I love my cooking and my, <laughs> I was very lucky. I was treated to sort of do this year at Pruleith School of Food and Wine. And in that year, I, I applied and worked hard towards auditioning for all the major London music conservatoires. And I chose the Royal Academy of Music because it's on Marlebon High Street and I thought it was the nicest location. So I, I did that <laughs> formal training. Yeah, hilarious. But it was fun, actually, because the Guildhall was in the city and it was really dirged around there. There was nothing nothing to do. And um, the Royal College was too far. <laughs> so I went for the Royal Academy. And as I say, I did an undergraduate course there and I was surrounded by people who really wanted to be opera singers. So in some ways, my time at the Academy, I didn't feel was, I didn't really feel I fitted in in a funny kind of way because I knew I wanted to experiment yeah. singing in choirs and consorts. Um, I have a lighter voice. I'm not a, a big operatic singer and nor did I have a burning desire to be on stage. But somehow I, I stuck with it and I went, I had a wonderful singing teacher, a wonderful coach. And I sort of just quietly developed my own thing inside, I suppose. And I got a church job, which was a sort of key starting point, I think, at the guards chapel. And I sang there on Sundays and there I started to hone this where I was around my people a bit more. And I, I obviously loved the repertoire of the church music. So I think things kicked off there and I started to meet people who also worked in consort groups such as the Talis Scholars and the Sixteen. And it just started to open up better doors for me and roots that enabled me to sing with my voice where I felt it was more suitable, I think. And then I got into the 16, so I was firmly in the, the 16 with Harry Christopher's singing all that wonderful repertoire, all the medieval Baroque Renaissance repertoire. And I've been so lucky to make so many recordings in that world. And then I suppose it was when I was about 24, I was invited to come and do a film session, my first ever film session. I don't remember which film it was, if I'm honest, but it was for Jenny O'Grady. <laughs> and I was so pleased about this because I'd heard about this world and my family live in North London. So actually I'd probably passed all these studios and sort of dreamt of having the opportunity to go in. And I would have only been in the choir, obviously, on my first session, but I don't remember the first time I was sort of plucked out of the choir to do something. But when it happened, it, it really felt like it was my natural habitat to be in those studios doing light, delicate singing on films. It just, it just feels really natural to me. And I just, you know, I love it. So I was that trying is to so gorgeous. <laughs> So that was definitely a pivot, I think. But amidst, uh, still amongst that time, I was still very much um, rank and file, you know, in the choirs and working for all these groups. And my goal was really to sing for everybody in the world, you know. And and I I sort of achieved <laughs> achieved that in some ways, but to its detriment as well. Then came the time when I had young children, um, five and a seven year old or whatever yeah. I think, and I was so overworked, I'd run myself down into the ground. So. You know, having achieved all these wonderful things that I was thrilled to do, I, I got to a point where I tied myself up in a knot vocally and I was so tired. Mm. And I had sort of a muscular strain in my neck and my, probably in my throat. And, and I had to take a rain check actually around the age of 37 and just slow right down. And so that, that was definitely another pivot um, because it was a real learning curve for me to try and reevaluate how, how can I do everything? I can't do everything. Nobody can. So it's mm -hmm. time to, to sort of do a little U-turn and slow down, stop and think, right, what do I really want to do and how am I going to do that? So I was 
I suppose, yeah, that, that was an interesting point. I sort of had to then step away from some of the things which were in place so comfortably and things that I loved, like doing all the consort and the choir work. But yet I was jeopardizing the moments when I was having solos for those moments. So I left the 16 and I left all of that consort singing behind, really. And that was a game changer mm. for me because luckily I was able to pursue these other things fully, but without arriving tired and all the time. We've all, we know how that feels, yeah. don't we? <laughs> when, we, when you arrive to yeah. do a, a long yeah. day and you've driven somewhere and, and then you think, how am I going to get through this day? But you do. And then you're more tired again the next day. So I don't do that anymore if I can possibly avoid it. And it's December 2023 as we yeah. record this. It is that silly season for everybody, but particularly for singers. And I think that kind of energetic relentlessness that you describe is such a terrifying part of so many creatives' lives, but particularly musicians at this time of year, where we're all just desperately hoping that if I say yes to enough, then if there's a quiet January, it doesn't matter. But actually, as you say, that that moment of going, no, I need to take control of this and, and I feel confident enough to, or even I don't have a choice, I have to take control of this because the risk of me not doing so is is too great. There's so much I want to unpick with you and there's so much we'll come back to. But yeah, let's, yes. let's go back to you saying, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release lots of stuff from my diary and I'm going to focus in on other stuff. Tell me more about that decision and then what happened next in the story. I suppose having left the Royal Academy... Um, I, so my early part of my career was, was very much to go and sing with ex-Cathedra in their consort. To audition for Harry Christopher's was a dream and, and I did that and I was in the 16. And then once I'd got everything up and running and I was really working for all these rock groups and things, my diary was getting fuller and fuller and fuller and the weeks would go by when I was singing every single day of the week and we've all done it, we've all been there. And then I got married and I had two children and I'm juggling them and I'm married to a musician who also goes on mm. tour and things. So there isn't a moment in the day where I'm not using my voice. I'm, I'm getting up, hurrying two children out the house to, to, you know, nursery or school or something, driving a hundred miles, seeing my colleagues being all upbeat yep. and happy to see them singing a huge program, driving home and, and repeating and repeating. And that was too much. So yeah. I got, and I, and I had that fear of never wanting to say no. I want to do everything. I want to be everywhere. We all do. It's in our mm. DNA when, when we choose to be in this world. Mm. So yeah, age 37 came the sort of, oh my God, I've got to stop singing. I'm going to do myself damage. Oh, and I had a bit of a, a kind of clonk. Yeah. And I had something on my cord, like a swelling or suspected cyst even. And I went to the ENT man and, and the first guy I saw, I won't say who it is said, oh, we can operate, you know, next week. And I was like, that was such a terrible wake up call for me. And I, I thought the very worst. I thought, what's happened? What have I done? Yeah. And actually, I refused to have surgery. I thought that that was a nonsense. I would never, ever do that. So I, yeah. I was put in touch with this wonderful, wonderful speech therapist called Melanie Meta, who was just extraordinary. And really, that was a, a massive change in my life to meet her and to talk to her and work with her and I had a whole summer where I didn't sing and I did these wonderful kind of tiny little head and neck exercises and speech exercises and it completely saved me. And I came back and I was in better shape than I thought I could have ever been. And then I wow. extricated myself from various things that I would normally have had in my diary in a nice way because I didn't want to have to turn anyone down. But on the other hand, I just knew that things 
that were several days of singing were not going to work for me in the same way. So I, I took a rain check on, on the schedule that I had or that I'd been living with. And I just altered that somehow. And I've been lucky because obviously I had other work in place to commit to. And around that time, I was getting more involved in all the film stuff and, and composers are coming to me asking for me to record this, that and the other. And Max Richter came to me and invited me to do his recording of Sleep with Deutsche Grammophon, which has obviously been an extraordinary project. And for those that don't know about it, an eight hour piece of music, which is scientifically written to to sleep to. It's got the sort of perfect frequencies for every hour through the night that that help you have the best quality sleep. And on this recording, there's one soprano voice and it's me and it's like a, a sort of Renaissance descant actually that comes in and out. And I think Max had heard some of my kind of early music work and had liked that. So that's been an amazing collaboration that continues to this day. And I've performed and worked with Max all over the world and recorded three of his other albums. So I think that gave me some amazing exposure, undoubtedly, for all the other sort of contemporary mm -hmm. composers that admire him and film composers. So that was definitely a big pivot and... It's been wonderful, you know, I love it, but it's, it's very um, exposed and, and technically challenging sometimes. So I have to know what's coming in the day before or the day after those kind of gigs and be careful what I do. I'm just going to take a moment to acknowledge, first of all, what a kind of absolutely wildly unique industry this is. The intensity of it, the language of it, the world of it is so unique. And to be able to make the big, bold decision to actively carve out a way of approaching it that looks different to the way that we're almost mentored approach it can be a really scary thing. And I think it all stems right back to the way you describe yourself at music college, regardless of what industry we're in. So often we're taught to think of that person in that industry looking a certain way or acting a certain way. And as you say, I know from my own experiences as a musician that when you are that late teens, early twenties, it's all opera. If you're in the classical mm. world, are you going to go to music college and then you're going to, then you're going to be an opera singer? And that's where the glamour is and the money is and the excitement is. That was certainly a narrative that was being peddled when lots of my contemporaries were looking at music college. Mm. And as you said, you've been someone that's gone, well, actually, this doesn't fit with the voice I have, the instrument that I have, or even the personality that I have, the way I want to express myself as a musician. And how did you find it being at music college, that person who wasn't conforming to that typical, oh, your voice needs to sound like this and you're going to go and do that? What was that like as an experience for you? Well, it was, it was frustrating. And I, I mean, I've come a long way since those days. I was really quite shy. I didn't really probably know why, why it was happening, but I, it, in the end, I just sang with my voice and, and it sort mm. of did find its root in the end, which was, which was amazing. But yeah, I, I stuck it out a long time. I was at the academy. I didn't feel massively valued because there was that feeling that, oh, you're here to sort of, you know, go on the, the stage. And I think these days, I hope they're a bit better. I think the early music um, programs are much, much stronger because obviously early music is so popular across the board. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter what happened there because I'm here now and um, really interesting things have happened mm -hmm. since. And I don't think mm. necessarily the, the heads of music or singing then would have predicted that I'd be enjoying a very successful career, whereas some of the opera singers that were winning the competitions then, I'm afraid we don't see them on the stage these days. So, you know, it's, no. all, rel it's all relative. 
And I think that has been beneficial to me because it, it found a niche that some singers perhaps aren't willing to do. Certainly in the film world, as you know, we're really there as an effect and in a colour. And mm. I, I'm really in a, a very big comfort zone using my voice like that now. And I think that's benefited me because when I step in the studio now, I can make suggestions to composers sometimes if they don't know how a voice works. You can say, do you like this colour? Do you like this vowel? Um, and these are just sort of brilliant tricks that have contributed to this whole world for me of contemporary music and singing in studios and singing on films because I don't often get text because we're singing to, di to a film which has dialogue. So we're creating this kind of otherworldly instrument that happens to be the human voice. And I really relish that. I love using my voice like that. I'm not afraid to change it or, or make it, adapt it to be like a violin or a flute or an oboe. And I also feel that all my Baroque work has contributed to that hugely because, you know, Bach and Handel and Vivaldi are, the, are really instrumental writers, even for the voice. If you think of cantatas, how we have to sometimes navigate a tricky Bach cantata and there's nowhere to breathe and you, you have to be like an oboe or organ or whatever it might be um, that could sing through those lines. So, so it's, it's amazing how it's all sort of contributed in, in the end, I think. And I'm, I'm very much using that same voice. It doesn't matter whether I'm singing my Hildegard von Bingen or I'm singing a Max Richter Descant. It's the same sound that I make, I hope. <laughs> Do you think that stems from being a violinist as well, having that yeah. sort of flexibility as an instrumentalist first and foremost? Definitely, because even sometimes when I'm reading new music, I will imagine the kind of fingerings that I would be using on the violin and the amount of bow in try to phrase it with the line that's required to play the violin. And I, I like to think that kind of comes through in an instrumental way when I sing. Does that make sense? It makes beautiful sense. And as a fellow violinist, I get it. And I think one of the things that can be so hard about being a musician is trying to describe what we experience as musicians. Mm. And I think it's one of the things that, that gives music this kind of exclusivity, you know, and this feeling that it can't be accessible to to everyone when actually the opposite is true be given the gift of music making is is something we all deserve and we should all have but I know what's really interesting Agreed. hearing you talk about it is a sense of your place within a kind of a wider kaleidoscope of sound and I wonder how it feels now to get to that point to be able to talk about that so openly do you think that the singing industry is starting to acknowledge this place for singers being able to explore themselves in these new ways and, and what's being valued is changing in the industry. That's difficult to judge because I'm when I'm when if I if I go into a scenario where I would was doing an oratorio or something, then maybe something sort of more formal would, would be expected. I don't know whether they would even appreciate mm. the fact that I sing on films. I remember I once got a really sniffy review because I'd done a Messiah at Cadogan Hall. And in my biography, I'd proudly put, because I'm proud of it, that I sing live on the Lord of the Rings films. And this guy was like, he was like, you can't do that. You can't sing a Messiah and sing on the Lord of the Rings. What? what? And it was like, he couldn't understand it. So, so one problem that I have always had is how I do describe what I do, because I am an early music specialist. But then maybe if I go on too much about all my contemporary stuff, they don't know who those people are and they don't believe it. But I just keep going with the things that I want to do and I don't worry too much about when I am singing my early music in the Netherlands, I try to maybe not mention that I've sang on the recent 
Kung Fu Panda film because I don't think they get that. So from a branding point yeah. of view, it, it's sometimes tricky, but ultimately it doesn't bother me because I know when, I, when I'm when i in each individual situation, then I'm fine. I think for a lot of singers, they will listen to this and a lot of people who aren't in the music industry will listen to this and go, oh my goodness, she was so brave to go, no, things have to change. Did it become like that for you with your small children that it was a point of going, actually, this has to be a line in the sand now because I just can't continue this way? And do you think that at that point you knew in the back of your mind that there would be enough of a kind of, if I can say, security net of other work that might be available if you took yourself out of, as you say, this kind of wild, touring, gigging lifestyle Mm. that is so exhilarating but ultimately so exhausting? Yes, it really took wear and tear on my voice. I mean, I suppose there's a leap of faith, isn't there, when you do something like that? And I also never wanted to be that person that would write to a fixer or someone and say, I don't do this anymore, because that's not the case either, really. Um, I was very fortunate that it was starting to become obvious that I had this interesting, amazing collaboration with Max Richter, which had longevity. And I think it was a leap of faith, though, to just say, right, I'm just going to go all out and do the things that I want to do, which don't make me tired, which pay me better. You know, there's my list of five rules. Do you have a list of five rules? I do. Um, Let's hear your list of five rules. My five rules are, is it going to lead to something? Is it something I like singing? Is it something I do well? Is it good pay? And is it nice people? And then if there aren't at least three of those things, I mean, there are other factors always as well. Is it a new place to go to? Is yeah. it interesting? Is it all of that? But if it isn't, then it maybe gets a polite, I'm afraid I'm not free, but that's all I ever say. I don't, I, don't, I try not to say rude things when I decline. So, um, <laughs> so no, I, uh, but I have been lucky, but I have worked blooming hard as well. And I think that's a narrative that I'm really keen to unpick with so many people going, I've just been so lucky in my career. No. No, you it's not been lucky. Luck. And, you, it's and not no one's luck. done this for me. It's I don't have luck. an agent. I, I've done this myself. No. I've got a really interesting variety of work and all of it I feel in my comfort zone and like I'm meant to be there. So, you know, I've got next year is looking crazy. It's like I start off, you know, singing Lord of the Rings and then I go and do a Matthew Passion tour. And then I go to France and I work with Joe Hisaishi and do the Studio Ghibli live stuff. Then I've got some other bits and bobs, but it is a, a wildly weird variety of things that I do. I adore it. And my natural habitat is to be in a church and a studio. You know, I love being in different places every day. This is exactly why I wanted you on the podcast, because we need to dismantle this narrative of like, there's one way of doing it and there's one area you can be a specialist. And there's one thing, it's just not the case at all. Ultimately, whatever industry you're in, if you're listening to this now and you are a writer or you are a scientist or you are a doula, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you are providing quality work that you are enjoying and that is making a difference where you are and I think that what comes back again and again when listening to you speak is there was a resilience there a self-awareness there and an understanding of your strengths and one of the things that I'd be really interested to hear more about is that moment where you go from going okay I'm stepping into a new point in my career where I'm being seen as somebody who's unique, who is a soloist, who is in demand. And how you navigate that when you've been used to being in this 
I often liken being in an ensemble or being in a consort. It's a bit like mm. a great love affair. You know, it's wonderful yeah. and it's so intense. We and love so that special. Absolutely. And we love each other and we're performing mm. and it feels like we're doing the most amazing thing anyone's ever done. But then actually to say, oh, I'm stepping away from that and I'm starting to inhabit. I'm starting to take up space. Yeah. And that's what you've really done in the last few years of your career. You've started to take up space. And how has that felt occupying this this new exposed, very public space as a specialist in these two disciplines? Well, that's a really nice question. I mean, I, I think it's really empowering and it's enabled me to have the confidence to reach out and come up with some creative ideas of my own and, and say to people, do you want to do this and collaborate? And it's also feels natural. It just feels natural. I feel like that. I've, I've been very lucky in that sense that I did just find that, but I have made it happen to an extent. And um, I also... You know, I hope that when I do, when I do appear in the odd consort or on a film session, I'm just, you know, I'm part of the team and I, that's in my nature anyway. It's just amazing how it's kind of all evolved really. And I wouldn't have it on any other way. I wouldn't want to be on tour still just doing one group. I think that would have, that would have been the death of me. I, I need this mm. variety. And I think for anyone listening who isn't in this world, it's worth us explaining. And I'll, and I'll put some of this in the show notes as well that. The music industry, the classical music industry is so unique in that there are hardly any jobs where you are an employee. You can be a regular, and I'm using inverted commas there, where you're somebody that's booked for most stuff. But in terms of those small groups, you don't get a job, get a pension, get a salary. You are booked for a set of concerts or a set of recordings. And then if you do a good job, you'll probably be booked again, but you might not be. So there is none of that security apart from with the BBC Singers and a few groups in, in Europe where we have that security of employment. And so for you to have found this new place in the world where you are going out securing your own one-off contracts or extended contracts with these huge, you know, Lord of the Rhythms, that's a huge institution. How has it been to go from oh, the fixers emailed me to ask if I'd like to do that gig for 250 quid <laughs> to, okay, well, we'd really like you to appear on the live tour of Lord mm -hmm. of the Rings and we'd like you to do it the next, you know, ad infinitum because you are the voice of Lord of the Rings. How has it been to go from that to that? Have you noticed that change or has it just sort of crept up on you? Well, no, I mean, it, it's, it's dealing with all different people. I mean, I'm lucky. I think I'm a good people person and it is about building these relationships. I actually never wanted an agent really because, and no agent mm. would want to take me on now because I'm in a different place every day and an agent will want yeah. three, three big operas a year, tick, done, got your commission. Yeah. I would be yeah. a nightmare. But I'm very well organized and I can self-manage myself now to some extent. And I think it's a huge benefit to deal with people directly because then they get to know you and it's like, oh, Gracie, are you free for this? And, and that's what people like. And they get an answer straight out of me. Mm. They don't have to go via five other people. So from that point mm. of view, it's great. You know, and I've, I I also would add that through these years of sort of, you know, growing up and, and becoming more confident and finding these niches, I've had the support of my husband, Nigel Short, who's really experienced in this world and actually is also a very good people person. He was also a singer. Not anymore, but when we have these low points as singers and when something goes wrong vocally or when you're just feeling down or whatever, which we all do, he's been a great kind of support and a great understander. I've been very lucky to have him. I kind of wonder whether I would have survived this well if I hadn't had somebody so understanding to moan to on a daily basis, <laughs> put it that way. You know, it's, it's wonderful. I've, I've done great things, but you know, I'm still a human and I, I get tired and upset and, 
And actually, it's just so, so helpful to have somebody grounded that understands what you're feeling and doesn't just think you're being a, just a whingy wife or something. You know, he really knows what it feels like to be a singer. And it's so hard to be a singer because you can't just go to music college, do this, that, then tick, tick and get that. It doesn't work like that, you know, as, as you just explained. Mm. And so, you know, you have to be really quite a strong person to withstand the disappointing moments. But I, I mentioned a word to describe you earlier, which was resilient. And mm. that's something I would come back to again. How do you maintain that resilience in this industry? I mean, yes, we could say you're in a great position now, but you've worked bloody hard for it and you absolutely deserve it. But how how does one keep that resilience going as a singer and as a performer? What is it that that keeps you going and keeps you feeling like Gracie? I don't know. What, I don't know what I could say to that. I mean, I'm, I'm very blessed. I've got my children and, and Nigel, and I. But I've never turned down work. I, I really do put my work first in some ways, and I've always been like, I'm going to do this because actually that's ultimately yeah. what keeps me happy. Maybe that's quite selfish, but I'm also, I'm okay with that. I'm very strong and very determined. And I, when I get offered a job, I, if I want to do it, I say yes, and then I worry about how the children are going to get home from school. So that that really does come first. And also, as I say, I haven't got a husband who says, oh, well, you can't possibly do that. No, he also always says, do it. And so that's a great boost, I, I think, to have that feeling. There's no question, but that, you know, I do my work. This is the moment and I'm doing it. So I'm not going to feel guilty about that. And even on a work day, like the mm. other day, I performed with you at E&O for that wonderful concert. I woke up and I made a bolognese for the children and then I went out on stage at Eno, and then I went to this fancy after party at the end and all that and I had champagne. But <laughs> I come home and I'm just me and then I still have to clean the house and hoover the living room just like everybody else. So um, all of those things combined give me resilience because they level me out. I think what's really interesting as well is it's just so wonderful to hear a woman describing what we all feel, which is, no, no, my career matters. And I know with my three children, I'm modelling to them that like, why, why are we doing all this school stuff? Why are we doing all this music stuff? We're doing it because I want you to live a life where your work makes you feel like you, Happy, where yeah. work doesn't have to be an add-on that you roll your eyes because you've got to go to work, where going to work is part of you, part of your soul, part of what yeah. you love. And I see that with you. And I would imagine that your children see that as well. So I, I wouldn't call it selfish. I'd call it bloody brilliant. Well, I hope mothering. so. I hope so. I know actually that the, the kids as a result are also very resilient because even when they were tiny, it'd be like, right, I'm going, I'm, I'm off to Japan. I'll see you in a couple of weeks <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, and I think that I'm fortunate that right back from the start, I had two parents that worked, but my parents were both in self-employed. Ah, oh, that's interesting. They're, yeah. So they're not musicians and you know, I'm adopted as well. So I, yes. um, I like to think my music was somehow in my genes, um, but of I course... I wonder if it is. Isn't that it, interesting? It would have to be, wouldn't it? I don't know. But my mum and dad so. are non-musicians. I mean, they're not at all, but of course the encouragement was there and they helped me discover this. But ultimately, it comes from you in the end, this sort of inner drive or want to do it, doesn't it? And you can't inflict that on anyone else. Like yeah. the kids, you know, I mean, my son, I think, may be a musician if, if he works hard enough but maybe my daughter not I don't know we'll see but um no yeah I mean the thing is that actually what they end up doing that it's not relevant what you're instilling them is is look at this role model that mum does something dad does something that they both are passionate about 
mm. that makes a difference and that makes them come alive. And it's not to devalue all the wonderful work that you do as part of the house, as part of your community, as part of being a friend. But if we don't have that and we don't celebrate it, then how can we help them to find their own intrinsic yeah. and extrinsic motivations? No, that's true. And they may not know it if they were told it in that way, but it's happening by osmosis, isn't it? Hopefully. Mm. And I do think that it is the greatest blessing of all to have just to be doing something that I love because it it, it really is. I mean, that has to be luck by, by some miracle that I just, I never, ever go to work and don't love what I'm doing. I mean, I really don't. Love that it. is pretty magical. And I, and I love all my colleagues and I love, because I have this weird variety of stuff, you know, I, I love that I now collaborate with people from America. We come together and then, and then we do weird things like, you know, on the day off, go to the zoo with my American friends. And then, then I'll fly home to London and I'll be with a choral society or something. I love that. That keeps me alive yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed different reactions to the value of music, to your place as a musician? Are there any p countries in particular you've thought, oh, this is a place where music is? just adored and I guess the flip side are there any places where you think oh we're just we're just well, filling space but nobody I, cares we're here I think in in the Netherlands when I'm doing baroque repertoire there that they they appreciate it so much and they they come knowing it and you think how do you all know this wow. and they have been educated certainly in the Bach and stuff when you go to Germany all those choirs they're they're amazing and that's really beautiful to to be in a full church with people who are there for the story or the text. It's extraordinary how they fill concert halls there. And I only wish we could do the same here, but it's not always the case mm. for financial reasons, probably. And then I think people are in awe of our choirs, aren't they? Certainly in America, they really do look at our British choral tradition and think it's a next level. But then they have brilliant choirs there too. As far as the yeah. sort of filmy stuff, yes, I think, you know, operatic singers in America, I don't know what they make of what I do, but it's all the different realms. I wish that there was more kind of opportunity in this country to do huge projects with sort of 10 Matthew Passions. That just doesn't really happen anymore, does it? I have seen yeah. things diminish over the years. I mean, at the start of my career, when I was doing big Spanish tours, going out to Spain for three weeks and yeah. recording and doing 10 concerts, that really doesn't happen anymore because I think the funding doesn't exist in the no. same capacity. Yeah. Do you find, talking about going to these different places, what's a typical audience like for when you go and do something like a performance of sleep or a performance of voices when you're working with Richter or when you're doing Lord of the Rings? Do you feel like a rock star, Gracie? Well, sometimes sometimes it's wonderful. We do get well looked after. I stay in nice hotels. We're quite a small team with Max's and it's a very unusual and, and special thing. I mean, sleep specifically is an invitation to the audience to react in their own way. They're not mm. expected to sit and watch, obviously, because they're invited to sleep. And I think to some element with all Max's performances and his pieces, he wanted to break down that sort of formality of having to sit upright in a concert hall and watch a concert. In sleep, people wander around. Sometimes it attracts people who have terrible problems with sleep. And then they don't sleep at all, but they just zone out and just experience it. And it's a comfort to them. And, you know, that's the whole point of it, that it reaches out to everybody in their own individual capacity and they just respond however. So there are some people reading books on iPads 
or just sitting up watching and then dozing off. It's it's a really unusual thing. And voices, we've had very different reactions to. This is Max Richter's other piece, which you and I performed the other day. And uh, at ENO, it was quite formal, but I suppose the presentation was quite formal. We were in an opera house. But back in the summer, we did a festival, Blue Dot Festival. And they were really full on, like really responding, cheering in between each piece, whooping over the music because they knew it and they loved it. Wow. So that was exciting. That was rock, more rock star, I would say, definitely. Um, <laughs> but so then the other week I did this performance at Wembley Arena, OVO, and that was rock star. And the backstage was one of the sort of grubbiest places I've ever been in my life. So that was funny. <laughs> Because you, you, you get you, you get to this enormous horn and it really was really not very pleasant backstage. It was hilarious. But then that's probably very rock star too, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that I have found as a human who does lots of different jobs, but also as a mother, is how I go from kind of, right, well, I'm in my beautiful dress and my wonderful makeup and I've been on stage and then I go home and, as you say, make a bolognese or... Uh, do the washing up or whatever. And then the next day I'm coaching or mentoring somebody. And then the next day I'm recording a podcast. And then the next day I'm going to do the school run. I haven't done the school run in a few days because I'm not a mum that does the school run every day. And I own that very happily. How do you find it flitting from being Grace, the, by extension, the movie star, to Grace, the adored early music specialist, to Grace, mum, to Grace, dog walker? How does that <laughs> feel for you? And how do you keep yourself? in that grounded space? Well, I don't think I ever am particularly different graces. I, I like to think I'm the same grace mm. with the same voice. And if anything, I'm a bit ashamed that I'm a bit scruffy. You know, like the other day I was a bit worried yes. about what to wear on stage because I like just being in my <laughs> jeans. I think that's why studio work appeals so much as well. You just turn up and yeah. you don't have to be made up. When it comes to yeah. the, the supposedly glamorous moments, I don't really relish them. I'm like, oh no, I need help with somebody to make me look glamorous. But you know, ultimately. And then and then I tell myself, well, it's not about what I look like. I'm here to sing. So does it really matter if I don't look like, you know, I don't know, I, I better not name anyone, but a glamorous singer of some description. Um, so, so no, I mean, you know, on a session day, I will have walked the dog and then I will go straight to a session and I would have looked the same walking the dog that I do turning up to the session. But I suppose that's part of this this graft that you've put in over the years as well mm. is yes it's about finding the niches that you're in but actually it's finding that very rare thing which is consistency and predictability as a singer as well knowing yes. actually I know what the next year the next two years are going to look like and how does it feel to have got to that point of consistency in your career um well it's obviously it's good. I mean, it's never consistent, actually. I mean, next year I've got some nice projects, but it's not full. It doesn't go beyond about August. Mm. And I'm perfectly happy to admit that. But I do have a, a confidence now that I didn't necessarily have before in like, you know, 10 or 15 mm. years ago where, where you would accept things thinking, oh, I better say yes. Well, I don't do that now. I'm more likely to say, no, there aren't, there aren't three of the five on the, on, on the list. Actually, okay. nothing's ultimately secure, is it? Because who knows? Maybe, maybe yeah. Max Richter will decide that he wants to write a piece with a tanner in it. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I don't think so because he's already got the things lined up. But yeah, that I, I have those worries too. Everybody does. But what I, what I am assured by is that feeling that I just know what I do want to do and what I don't want to do. And I'm not afraid to turn things down these days. 
But I think I think that's one of the things that's really interesting when you look at people that have you know made these pivots in their lives and have made these active choices. There has to come from it a kind of an underlying a set of values that you adhere to. You know, you've mentioned your five rules a, a few times, and I might reframe that as a set of values or principles that you have as yes. a musician, but also as an individual. Yes, that you might adhere to across exactly. a Because my five, that's a good way of reframing it because it's not a rule, is it? It's a, it's what works for me and it might not work for someone else. Mm. For example, sometimes I would take on a, a very lowly paid gig or a free gig, w- which was a new piece of repertoire that I might not otherwise have the opportunity to perform. And, th- and then that's of interest to me at this stage. I think, oh, I'd, I'd love to tick that off. I'd love to have a go at that. But I won't be doing it in Carnegie Hall, but I'll do it with this choral society and just enjoy it. So it's, yeah, that, that's the most important thing of all, really, just for, for an individual musician or a singer to have the inner sort of belief of what they think they're good at and what they want to do and try and stick with it. And I know that's simplistic because it's such a difficult juggle, isn't it, to know how to, to balance everything. And there's just no right or wrong. It is, but there is no right or wrong. And ultimately... It's having that kind of inner compass of values, of rules, and that that belief that comes with getting used to rejection, but also getting used to going, this feels like this. How do I bring more of that into what I'm doing? How do I get more of that? What do I need to do to get more of that to happen? And that's that's exactly what you've done in your career. You've recognized mm. the things that you're good at and that you love doing and that can pay well. And what can I do to get there? And those obstacles that we have along the way, as you say, that moment where you went, this voice of mine just isn't working right. To have the confidence to go, I have to stop, but it doesn't have to be a full stop. You know, it can just be a pause and we'll come back to it. And in the meantime, I'm going to work through that. What a wonderful thing to have done and not to have gone, well, actually, I'm 37 and maybe this was a natural stopping point anyway. No, 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 this is too important. How are we going to fix it? Come on, yeah. Gracie. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's going to be next? Yes, it's amazing, actually. That, <laughs> that was an overriding thing, I suppose, that, you know, some, somewhere deep down. Because it was quite traumatic. And I'm sure other singers have had moments like that. And I'm sure they're afraid to share them. And I'm so grateful to you that you have, because we need to talk about these moments of when it's just suddenly not working. And I think yeah. that can be the same across so many industries. Suddenly the thing that worked for you doesn't. And we have to change something and change can be terrifying. But actually, when it's bolstered by that self-belief, when it's bolstered by the knowledge that, no, I am an expert, I can do this, something needs to change and I'll work it out as I go, which is exactly what you've done. Gracie, it has been such a joy to hear about your different pivot. Before I end today's podcast, there's a question I ask all my guests, which is, is there a pivot which you haven't yet explored? Is there a little nagging voice in the back of your head going, one day, one day, I want to do this. And if so, what might that be? Ooh. Well, one crazy, crazy thing, and it's just a sort of like a performance-related thing, was that when I recently sang at the Wembley Ovo, I came out in the break and I looked over and I saw the Wembley Arena. And I, and I jokingly thought, I'd, that's something I'd like to do. I'd like to sing at Wembley Arena. And the other thing I would like to do is, oh, I mean, this is in my wildest fantasy. I probably shouldn't even admit this. But I always dreamt about <laughs> singing, singing the title song on a Bond movie. That's that and is my ultimate dream. It's never gonna, it's never gonna happen because it has to be a pop star or some somebody like that. But yeah, having all these little moments on film. Actually, I would like to sing the end credits or the start credits. Please, thank you. 
<laughs> Please thank you very much, Grace Davidson, <laughs> Bond girl. But I don't know how that can be arranged. Maybe it's not okay, really the right sound. I probably need. They I don't think want. It could be amazing. They probably want something a bit more sort of I don't know jazzy. Maybe I could be jazzy. Maybe that's what I'll do. I'll be a jazz singer. Oh, next. okay. There we go. That will be the next generation of singer you'll be. You'll go into a jazz repertoire. As Grace, it has been Aww. such a joy. Thank you really so nice. much for joining me on Pivot the Podcast. Thank you very much for Thank having you, me. Darling. Thank you so much for listening to Pivot the Podcast. It means so much to get your lovely reviews and feedback. You can always email me hello at lauraoldfield.com. Visit my website, lauraoldfield.com. Let's make friends on Instagram, lauraoldfield underscore. Or you could be amazing. You could subscribe and leave me a five-star review. How special would that be? It's on Apple. It's on Spotify. It's wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a small business owner or a freelancer or a creative who's looking for some coaching or mentoring, I'm your girl. And if you're looking for a singer, again, hello. Thanks once more for listening and I'll see you in a fortnight. Please would you subscribe to Pivot the Podcast. You can find us where you might expect like Apple and Spotify. Please would you subscribe to Pivot the Podcast. Please would you subscribe today. Please would you subscribe.